as those of us who have been Christians for a long time, for those who have been part of churches for, for many years will know that there really can be pros and cons uh, when a church loses its minister and when a church becomes vacant. Okay, there can be pros with that and there can be cons. Now, a sort of a pro, a, a positive aspect uh, in a vacant church is that we can, we, we can, if it's vacant, get to hear a sort of wide variety of preachers, can't we? And a sort of a wide variety of preaching styles. That's a positive aspect, isn't it? Of being in a, in a vacant church. But a negative aspect is that then the sort of teaching in the church can begin to sort of resemble, uh, you know, a sort of biblical pinball machine, can't it? You know, in a, a vacant church, you've got a wide variety of ministers. Great, but one week a guy will come in. And he will preach on Exodus. Okay. Next week's new guy. He comes in and he will preach on Jude. And then your next week you're in Isaiah and you're, you're all over the place in scripture. Now the problem with that is of course when we are dotting about all over the place in the Bible, it is quite difficult, isn't it? When we get to a text to try and get to grips with the background, you know, to try and get to grips with the sort of situation of the text. Like, Let's say tonight we just scrapped what we've been doing. And let's say we just hit Exodus 13. Okay. Now, no matter how good the sort of preacher's introduction to it is going to be, we are not really going to have quite as solid a grip on the situation of Exodus 13. We're not going to have such a sort of solid grip in the background of what is going on there. Had we taking a good run at it. You know, had we looked at Exodus 1 through 12. You see what I mean? Now, why am I saying that? Well, it's because at some point last year, we looked together at this portion of Scripture that we're in tonight. We looked at Genesis chapter 22. Now, um, if memory serves me right, I think it was because we were in between our sermon series And it was just a sort of one-off thing. But we did look together at Abraham's testing on Mount Moriah. So do you see what the hope is tonight, I wonder? Get it? The hope is tonight that, that as we return to these verses, that our understanding of them is actually greatly sort of enhanced. Our understanding of Genesis 22 is, is, is deepened. Why? Because unlike last time, we're not just hitting it out of the blue. This time, we come to Genesis 22 having looked in detail at the previous chapters. So that's the hope. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. Okay, if you haven't done so, please do. Let's consider our first point here. Let us consider together the obedience of Abraham. Very simple heading, first of all. The obedience of Abraham. Okay, now, if your Bible is open, have a look at what we are told in verse 1. Um, we are told, very simply, sometime later, what does it say? God tested Abraham. Now, that is a preacher's dream, okay? Because that means that we do not have to spend the next sort of five to seven minutes trying to work out what is this passage of scripture all about? But after work, we're told this is 
test, okay? It's a test from God to Abraham and friends. What a test it is. Isn't it? When we really think about what's going on here, what a test it is. I mean, this is a test involving Abraham's son. And this is a son. What do we know about the son? What do we know? Because we've we've gone through all these chapters. What do we know? This is a son that Abraham has been desperate to, to have. I mean, this is a son that Abraham has waited 25 years for. You know? And it involves his son. Okay, what else? It is a test that immediately follows the sending away of Abraham's other son, Ishmael. We know that, don't we? We've looked at the background. Imagine, look at this anew in light of that. I mean, we know that that sending away of Ishmael, do you remember how it, it wrecked Abraham? Remember what we were told repeatedly in the text? He was distressed about the sending away of Ishmael. And that surely was an event that would have intensified his love for his remaining son, Isaac. And then note here what it is that Abraham's called to do. Look, I, I, I know most of you have got a church upbringing. Okay? Most of you know Genesis 22 quite well. I would urge you not to be clouded by that. What is this test about? Look at it. Verse 2. Read this anew, please. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Sacrifice him. This is a test, isn't it? But is this not a test that really should send shivers down our spine? But what I want us to do in just this first heading here is actually to look at the the remarkable... Um, compliance that Abraham demonstrates in the face of this command. Okay, so what I want to do, I'm just going to give four bullet points about Abraham's compliance, about his obedience to this command. Okay, so four things about Abraham's response is obedience. Ready for these? First of all, I want us to notice Abraham's unhesitating obedience. Just let's, let's think about it. God's given this Dare we call it an awful command? You know, God's given this certainly a heartbreaking command. And then have a look in your Bibles at how verse 3 begins. You know, Abraham's been told, sacrifice your son. Read the beginning of verse 3. Have a look at it. Early the next morning. Early the next morning. Abraham gets, gets up and he, and he gets on with this. Now, isn't that incredible? Remember what we know. There is none of the confronting of God that we have seen previously with Abraham. Remember Sodom? Remember that the Abraham learnt of what was going to happen at Sodom, the destruction. What does he do? He confronts God. There's none of that in the sacrifice of his son here. There's none of the, the challenging of God as well. Do you remember that? When, when Abraham is wrestling with, with the, 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 the promise of an offspring and he, and he sees nothing. Where is Isaac? And he's, he's wrestling with this and he says to God, he challenges God. And he says, you know my servant Eliezer, he's going to be the one that's my heir. There's none of the challenge of God in this. 
You see, despite this, this, this awful crisis that we have got this man in, we, we see that he is determined to react with unhesitating obedience. Then, then notice as well that it is a complete obedience, okay? Think about the fact that Abraham here takes with him exactly what he's going to need to fulfill the sacrifice. You know, he's told to, to sacrifice his son. Early the next morning, what does he do? He, he, he gets his, he knows he's going to need a couple of servants, so he gets the servants ready. He knows he's going to need to, to build an altar. What do we find him do early in the morning? He gets up and he's chopping wood. He's, he's determined to get everything ready for this. And then he travels to exactly, and this is emphasized in the text, He travels to exactly where it is that God wants him to undertake this sacrifice. Do you see? In this crisis, this is a man here who is determined not just to obey God. In this crisis, this test, here is a man who is determined to obey God to the letter. It's complete obedience. Third one, Note that it is, as well, unwavering obedience. You see, I, I, th- I think, although we've, I'm sure, sat under sermons on this and read it uh, many times, I think there is an aspect of this text that we often can, can kind of bypass. And it is the journey that Abram has to, to undertake here. And I hope you noticed it. That in order to, to sacrifice Isaac or to, to build the altar, Abram has to travel uh, quite a long way. He has to travel uh, from Beersheba to Moriah. And that's quite a long way. I think we're told it's three days. Now I want you to try and imagine what that uh, journey to Moriah would have been like. Now, we hear of sort of father and son time, don't we? Like, I don't know how, how father and son time would work really in, in London. I'll have to explore it. But certainly in Scotland, you know, father and son times, usually, you know, the dad will take the boy fishing. Or, you know, the, you know, father and son, they go, they go camping. You see, essentially that is what we've got in Genesis 22. I, I know, okay, there's a couple of servants involved, but essentially what we've got here is just a dad. You know, and his young boy, and they're going on a trip, and they're they're getting to know each other, and there's a dad and a boy, and they're they're spending quality time together for for three long days, yeah. But then I think all the while, what's happening in Abraham's mind? All that beautiful, precious time with his boy, and he knows at the end of this, he's called to kill him. Yet, what do we not see? We don't see any doubting. We don't read on this trip or at the end of the trip of any sort of wavering at all from Abraham. Do you see? I mean, this is a guy in this crisis who is absolutely fixed on obeying the Lord. And then the last of them, the fourth one, note that it is trusting, obedience. And this is, get this, this is the most important one. Because Abraham here, speaks to his servants, these, these couple of servants. 
And the words that Abraham speaks to his servants are crucial. If we're going to understand any of this stuff, you know, if we're going to understand what's going on here, if we're going to understand Abraham's faith, we have to work out and see the words he speaks to his servants in verse verse 5. Please have a look. Verse 5. So the situation is that Abraham is leaving the servants. Okay, he's traveled for three days. They've made that journey. They get to the, the, the region of Moriah. And it's the point where, where Abraham starts saying goodbye to his servants. He's like, I'm going to take Isaac. You know, this is the point that they sort of make that departure. And it's just Abraham and Isaac and they're, they're going away. Look what he says to the servants as he leaves the servants. Do you see it? He says, me and Isaac, we will worship and then we will come back to you. We, we will come back to you. Now, he's leaving to, to kill Isaac in Abraham's mind. Yet he says to the servants, we are going to come back to you. What do you think, when you read that, what, what do you think Abraham's doing? I mean, do you think that Abraham is just, just, do you think it's just words? Do you think Abraham is lying, perhaps? To, is that what he's doing? I don't think so. Friends, I think if, if we put what Abraham says later on in verse 8, he says this, he says, God will provide the lamb. If we put that together with what we learn in the New Testament, that at this point in Moriah, when, when Abraham is separating from the servants, that, that Abraham believed absolutely that God could raise Isaac from the dead, what we find is that Abraham truly and utterly believed what he was saying to his servants there, he believed that because of God's goodness, he believed that because of all that covenant faithfulness that he has seen from God, he believed somehow, didn't know how, in some way, both he and Isaac would be returning to those servants. Now, as we look at that sort of compliance, as we look at those four things about obedience, What is it that tonight we need to be thinking about as a congregation? What is it that you need to be thinking about from from this? Well, here we go. I um, I want us just now to ask ourselves this. I want us to ask ourselves, what is it that is the supreme attachment of our hearts? And, you know, the obvious... And we know what the obvious answer should be to that, but let's put that aside. What's the honest answer to that? Who is it and what is it that you just now in your life love more than anything else? At this point in your life, who is it or what is it that you think about more than anything else? And ask yourself, is that actually Jesus Christ? Is it? I mean, truly, as a Christian, at this point in your life, is He, the Son of God, the supreme attachment? Is He the supreme affection? Is He the ultimate thing in your life? I mean, you see, do you not, that that is what Genesis 22 is about? I mean, you see that this test is all about that. The test was to see whether Abraham here would 
demonstrate such a devotion to God that it would even outweigh and outstrip the love that he had for his own son. And what we learn here is that sometimes, and I I hope you get this, sometimes in, in our lives, it's going to be through crisis and through test that God gives an opportunity to demonstrate that devotion to Jesus Christ. And sometimes it is going to be through the crisis and through the tests that God is going to grow us and mature us into into that devotion, into that love and affection for Jesus Christ. So I, I say to you, I know that some people here tonight are going through a, a crisis. And I know that some of you are going through an incredibly testing time. And you wonder how through this do I respond as a Christian? We look at Genesis 22 and we see that we respond to these crises by acting in obedience to God. We act by showing love to God. A God who, who will, because he's a faithful God, he will bring us through these things regardless of what they are. So we see the acceptance, sorry, the uh, the obedience, the obedience of Abraham. Okay, let's move on. Let's consider a second thing. Let's let's consider the acceptance of the substitute. Okay, the acceptance of the substitute. Now, um, I think I've mentioned this before from the pulpit. So, sorry if I have and, and you've heard this before. Um, but when I was a kid. I went away to a, a massive big sort of water park with a big group of uh, school children. And so that sort of water park that you get in Europe where, you know, it's, it's all singing and dancing. It's got all these big chutes and wave-generating machines and all that sort of thing. I was a wee boy and I fell. Um, I fell into the area that had a wave-generating machine. And I began to sink down into the water. And I realized that I didn't have the strength to get myself out. And I, it was so scary. <laughs> you know, I, I, you know, you sort of feel the sort of breath leaving you. And, you know, I genuinely thought there and then as I'm sinking into the water, I thought that's me. You know, I am absolutely a goner. And then what happened was that sort of right at the sort of in the nick of time, I just saw a, a hand come down and grab my arm. And uh, this lady just just wheeled me out of the out of the water, and I was saved. I, and it was just, honestly, just in the nick of time. And in Genesis 22, we have to appreciate the sense of urgency that we have here, because what happens next? We've seen the obedience from Abraham, but he 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 goes through with this, you know. He, he binds Isaac, his son, and he puts him on an altar. And it is then, I mean, do you see the detail? There's so much detail given by God that it's like a sort of film slow-mo. Because Abraham, we're told, the knife comes into the air 
Uh, We're told that he is ready to slay his son. He is ready to kill his son. And it's then, just in the nick of time, that there is a voice from heaven. An urgent angelic voice. An urgent angelic voice that says, Abraham, do not do this. Stop. And what we need to know is that at that point, Abraham looks up. There must have been relief, I'm sure. But he looks up. And what does he see? He sees a ram caught by its horns in a nearby thicket. He uses this ram in place of Isaac. Now, okay, what do we see tonight? What are we supposed to see about this ram? Well, I, I, I guess a sort of obvious uh, important lesson is that in the severe crises of our life, that God will step in and that God will provide everything that we need in our period of testing. That's part of it, isn't it? But I tell you, it's more exciting than that. Because there's something greater here. I mean, there's something marvelous that affects all of the rest of the Bible. Because we see in this ram the unveiling of God's willing acceptance of a substitute for sin. I'm going to say that again, because we have to get it. We see in this ram with Isaac the unveiling of God's willing acceptance of a substitute for sin. You see, cast your mind back to what the test was about. If I was to say to you, what was, what was Abraham asked to do with Isaac? You would say to me, he was asked to sacrifice Isaac, wouldn't you? Ah, but that's not, that's not what he was asked to do. He was asked to sacrifice Isaac as a, as a burnt offering. He was asked to sacrifice Isaac as a sacrifice for sin. Do you see it? So what we've got in this last minute, you know, this, this last second provision of a ram. Now think about it, you know, think about the people of, of Israel reading this. You know, when Moses gives them this book, what we see here is God's revelation to his people that he's going to permit a, a suitable, if they can find a suitable and a timely sacrifice, God will permit that for their own sin. Now, think about how that idea here, substitute for sin, how that expands through the Old Testament. Think about the Old Testament Levitical system. We've got this idea here that God's going to accept a substitute for sin in its embryonic form in Genesis 22. It's first sort of unveiling. Very soon in the Old Testament, what's going to happen is that people are going to be putting their hands on the head of animals to identify with the animal. And then what's going to happen is that the animal is going to stand in their place. The animal is going to act as their substitute. Do you see? The, the, the replacement for, for sin. This Genesis 22, this, this ram, this, this idea of substitution, it is just massive. For the whole of the Old Testament and for the people of God. But we're Christians. 
And so we look at this. <laughs> and we see something else, do we not? You see, um, I'm sure you know what um, what the Rorschach test is. You know what the Rorschach test Like, I think we all know what the Rorschach test is, even if we didn't know that it was called the Rorschach test. Because the Rorschach test is that uh, psychological test that doctors do. You know when they sort of give a patient a flashcard and it's got almost like a splodge of ink on it? Maybe in the shape of a sort of, maybe it's a butterfly or whatever. And and the patient has to say to the doctor what they see in the card, what they think it is. That's the Rorschach test. You, You know what I mean? You've seen it in films, surely. Would you see in modern Christianity, in Christendom today, we have taken the cross of Jesus Christ and we have just turned it into a flashcard in the Rorschach test. You know, you hold up the cross of Christ in front of some so-called Christian churches. And you say, what do you see there? And they will look back and they will see, I, I see martyrdom at the cross of Christ. They will see to us, say to us that the cross of Jesus Christ is only about a virtuous good man dying as a martyr. Or you hold up the, the card, you hold up the, the, this Rorschach test, the cross in front of another liberal church, and they will say, I see in the cross of Jesus Christ just an example. An example of a good man dying to show his followers humility. Well, friends, do you see what happens when we hold up the cross in light of the Bible, in light of Genesis 22? What do we see? we see that the cross of Jesus Christ is about substitution for sin. That is what this ram is really pointing to, isn't it? That's the ram stood in for Isaac. So in his death, what has happened is that Jesus Christ has stood in for his people. Do you see that tonight? That the cross is about a replacement The cross is about Jesus Christ acting as a substitute for his people. Friends, do you see that he stood in and faced the punishment for sin that you should have received? You see, this idea of substitution that you should have been on the cross. You should have faced the wrath of God. And so when you turn to Genesis 22 and you read in verse 8 that God will provide the lamb, don't you just rejoice in the fact that he actually has? That there was a lamb led to the slaughter. Do you not rejoice in, in, in what we read in the New Testament when John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, behold, what? The lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Do you not rejoice in just how that sin was taken away? In what Genesis 22 points to, the truth that he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. Do you see it? We praise God for Genesis 22 Because we see there that God not only accepts, but he provides the substitute. 
for sin. So we see the acceptance, the acceptance of the substitute. Friends, let's close with a third heading. We've seen obedience and we've seen acceptance. Thirdly, we see the benevolence of God. The benevolence. So we're talking about the goodness, the kindness, the benevolence of God. So we get the fact that there's been a test. And and we get the fact that there's been a ram provided by God. Um, What we don't often look at at all is the fact that there is a last section to this that really and truly just goes unnoticed. Now, I think that, that we could miss the importance of this last section. So I'm talking about the section there from verse 15 onwards. Now, we could, we, we could entirely miss the importance of this. Because we could think, okay, this last section, we've seen it boring. We've seen it before. Because what has happened in, in, we know that in chapter 12, God has, has promised seed, land, blessing to Abraham. Now, what have we seen in the subsequent chapters? We've seen that when Abraham is obedient, when Abraham demonstrates some faith, what God has done is he's kind of expanded, hasn't he? Do you remember that? He's kind of in, unveiled more about the promises. You've seen that, you know, in chapter 12, it's a promise of land. But then Abraham's faithful later on in another chapter, and so it becomes the promise of land forever. The, the promise, the initial promise, when there's faith, is expanded. So we get to this last section, and we read about the promises, and we just think, ah, oh, it's boring. I've seen it before. This is just a, a, another one of these restating of the covenant, isn't it? It's not... It's not. What we must see is that this last section is very, very important to the whole of Genesis. Important to the whole of Scripture. Do you know why? This is the very last time that God is going to address Abraham about the covenant at all. What did I say last week? Abraham dies very, very soon. He dies in Genesis chapter 25. So this is not, do you see? A simple restating of the covenant blesses. This is God's final word to Abraham about this wonderful covenant of grace that we rejoice in. So what do we see here? Well, um, before I was born, uh, my dad and my mum lived in a small house in Inverness. And one day, my dad was out digging the garden. He was actually moving manure around the garden uh, to help his plants grow. And he was out there all day. And then he comes back in and he's filthy head to toe. Probably pretty smelly as well, I would imagine. And uh, my mum looked at him and uh, my dad could tell that she was raging, furious. It wasn't just the smell. Because my mum could see just like that, that my old man had lost his wedding ring when he was out digging the manure. Okay, so uh, my dad sort of panics and, and goes out. And despite spending hours and hours looking for it, like father, like son, uh, the old man had managed to lose his wedding ring. Now, 
when my mum's telling me this, you know, she, she told me that at that point she was really quite upset. I, c- I couldn't understand it really at all until, as a kid, my mum explained to me why a wedding ring was important. You know, she explained to me what a wedding ring was. She explained to me that it was a way of underlining, a way of guaranteeing that promise that my dad had made to her, that he would love her, you know, that he would be committed to her, that he would, what is it, love her till death did them part. Now it's that, that guarantee, that security that we see as we close Genesis 22. Because that's what God is doing here with Abraham. He's giving him a wedding ring, if you like. Because what he does here in verse 16 is he swears an oath on himself. God does that. God says, I swear by myself that these promises that I've given you, Abraham, because of your faith, because of your faith in Christ, they will come to pass. They are sure promises. And then, what does he do? Well, then, yeah, he does kind of unpack and unveil more about the beauty of these promises. Now, how do we end tonight? Let me give you two things to take home with you, to take into the week. Two very short things. The first one, is that we see here in that, that as Christians, we can have the most absolute confidence in our salvation. You know, we can have absolute confidence in the covenant of grace. You know, that that, that promise that God has made to Abraham is a sure promise. A promise to bless the nations through his offspring. A promise to bless his nations through Jesus Christ. That is a promise so concrete and so secure that God, the creator of all things, is willing to secure it and swear an oath to it on himself. Your salvation in Jesus Christ, the covenant of grace, it is secure. And then the second thing we take home, we see in the expansion of the promise here, just the sheer lavishness of your salvation. The lavishness of the covenant of grace. I don't know if you noticed this when I read through the end of the chapter earlier on, but God uses hyperbole here, doesn't he? I mean, do you see it? God describes the blessing in this way. The blessing to Abraham is as numerous as what? As the stars in the sky. The blessing of the covenant of grace is as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Do you see? Such is the sort of profusion, the abundance of this blessing that there doesn't even seem to be words in existence to describe the blessing. Is that? Is that that we finish with? That thought? That because of the covenant of grace, we are profoundly blessed that because Jesus also carried the wood for his own altar, 
up the hill. And because at Calvary there, there wasn't that urgent uh, angelic voice to, to stop the death, it didn't happen, it didn't come. That because God, unlike Abraham, did watch his son, his only son, whom he loved, die as a sacrifice for sin. Because that happened, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, yes, your salvation is secure. But it's lavish. I mean, it is lavish. You know, tonight you are saved. But one day what will happen is that you will go to heaven. And you will dwell there with your Savior for eternity. And it will be absolutely glorious. And we see in, in, in Genesis 22, we see in all of Scripture that this comes about because worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Let's pray.